Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're trusting that the Holy Spirit is, is going to speak to you, has already spoken. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you, you chose to make us your church home for an hour today. Turn with me over to the book of Mark, chapter 3. We're going to continue, actually end our um, series on our core values today. There are five core values through which we bring all of our activity and our mission Number one, we believe in the lordship of Christ, that Jesus being Lord is not just a title or an acknowledgement of a position, but it's actually a function that we, we give him in our lives. He is master, ruler, owner, controller, and we want to obey him. Secondly, we, we think that evangelism is the primary way the church ought to grow. Now, if you were not one to the Lord by somebody in this house, and you happen to have been an unchurched person, you love Jesus already and you found us, or you came from another church, we're not, we're not mad you're here. We're happy. But please understand that you are not or nor were you our target. Our target in terms of winning, Jesus, winning people to Jesus are those folks who don't know anything about them. And that is the vehicle through which we plan to grow the church. Secondly, when we win those people and those who come to us that are unchurched or transferring churches, our goal is to disciple them. So we believe discipleship is really important, that we are helping people become disciplined followers of Christ. Jesus said, go into all the world and talking to the disciples said, make disciples. So that's what we are challenged to do. When we bring them into the setting, we hope that they don't just join a crowd, but they really join a family find a whole lot of people with the same last name, you Christian, you. We all have dad as, as our, our God, and, and so we definitely want to reflect what family looks like here, how we relate to one another, and we actually care for one another more than we care for ourselves. And then lastly, today we're going to talk about leadership development, what it means for you to become a better leader in your own setting. So Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. Mark 3, 13 through 15. <clears throat> Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he, whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach, verse 15, and to have authority to cast out demons. Lord, help as we study today. Four things on this passage about which I'd like to talk to you. One, that Jesus called some people to himself. Two, he created companions. Three, he had a, he had a real passion to make sure people were trained in how to communicate. And four, he wanted to transfer authority to them so that, so that they could advance a kingdom in unusual ways. Jesus was building his staff. The people that he would lean upon to do administrative duties and ultimately carry the mission in, in his absence, and that is build the church. And his, his first task was to find people that he could train as leaders. Uh, you would think that Jesus would, would go to the, the version of seminary that they had that day and go pick some people from those who were studying theological truth. But he went to the, 
to the shipping areas. He went to the fishing villages. He went to the tax, he went to the IRS. He, he, he went to the, the military uh, mercenary group and, and found a guy named Simon the Zealot who would be characterized by the Jews as a freedom fighter, but to the Roman community, a terrorist. He went to the most unusual places where nobody would think these people would ever be spiritual leaders, but Jesus saw something, which ought to make you feel like you're in pretty good company. These are all folks that the religious leaders of the day overlooked intentionally. We're not interested in them leading anything, yet Jesus saw something. He saw some leadership that not even the disciples saw in themselves and called them. And there is a calling that God is still doing today. It's a calling that goes beyond your placement in heaven. Though I'm grateful for that, there's really nothing that supersedes the fact that our names are written in glory. That's special. Yet, we aren't there yet. We have a reservation, but we're not there. So why are we still here except that we might do something for him, expand the purpose of his kingdom while we are here in the lives of people who haven't experienced it, to be a, a really good witness, an emissary of his goodwill wherever we go. That's why we are still here. If it was all about just getting you to glory, he should have taken you when you got born again. But if it's about bringing glory here, bringing heaven here, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, then you have a purpose. And these disciples had a purpose. They had a reason to remain with Christ on the earth. And he was about to draw out of, out of them leadership that they didn't even know they possessed. And that which they did not have, he was going to bring increase. But part of the process of leadership development is letting people know exactly where they are. And for the first probably six months, he had to help them understand that they were not what they needed to be in order to do what he needed them to do. And you understand the, the scale of, of competency that people use to determine how much resources they can really invest in somebody. You know that, don't you? You start with the understanding that you, you are... You are unconsciously incompetent. In other words, you're really bad at what you do and you don't even know how bad you are. That's a bad place to be because you're making mistakes and you don't even know it. You don't even know what you don't know. But you need somebody to help you understand what you don't know so at least you can become cognizant of what you don't know even though your skills may not have increased yet, which brings you to the next phase. Now you are consciously incompetent. At least you know how messed up you are. This is a good thing. You're gaining increase in the understanding of what it means to get to where you need to be. So now you've gone from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. Now that you are consciously incompetent, you can, you can change some stuff because you know what mistakes you're making and where you need to increase. And you're on the road to becoming consciously competent. You're thinking about what you're doing. You're making sure you're not doing the stupid stuff. You're making sure you're doing the good stuff. And, and you're methodically doing the good stuff well. And you're thinking, yay, I'm getting better and better. But you're not there yet. Where you need to get to 
is unconscious competency. Where you are just doing it and you don't even think about it. It just flows out of you. It's a thing that, that athletically we look at and we say, that's what separates Michael Jordan from Brad. <laughs> oh, Brett can make a layup. But when Michael makes one, wow, it's like poetry. It's like, mm, that's amazing. He's not even thinking about it. He's just doing what comes natural. And he's so gifted and talented that his competency is off the charts. And he's trained his skill sets to where now he can just flow and not have to be real regimented in what he does. That's where you want to get. But you never start at the place naturally where you are consciously competent. All of us start at the place where we are unconsciously incompetent. And the process of discipleship brings us, hopefully, to the place where we can be at the other end of the spectrum. Jesus saw these men who were unconsciously incompetent. They didn't even know how messed up they were. And for the first six months, he tried to help them understand how messed up they were. And then he began to increase them to such a degree that he gave them the stewardship of multiplying the purpose of God in the earth in his absence. Amazing. That's you. That's you. You don't know how great you are called to be. You don't know the damage you can do to the, the kingdom of darkness, and you have no idea how much you are called to advance the kingdom of light. But God does, and that's why he called you. You are left here because he wants to expand his leadership through your life, whether it be through maybe just your family or your neighborhood or your friends, whatever it is, you're called to lead something and do it better than you do it today, tomorrow. And he is enabling you by bringing you through the spectrum so that you can do it well. And these disciples thought they were going to be leading something very different than that which they wound up leading. I mean, they thought they were going to be the people that would set up, help set up the kingdom of the Messiah and kick out Rome and Herod and all the religious leaders and do something different. And God had a different plan. He was going to bring his kingdom, yet not like they thought. And he said, I, I, I'm calling you to come with me. And he called them. And the beauty, the beauty of the, the end of the calling, at least the, the best response to the end of a calling, is to, to respond affirmatively. You don't put Jesus on hold. It says, he summoned those he wanted to himself, and they came. He said, I want you, and they responded affirmatively. How do you respond when Jesus calls? First of all, is your hearing aid turned up? Do you need some support to be able to know what his voice sounds like? The way you sound, the way you understand how his voice so sounds... It's like you understand anybody else's. How do you recognize your wife's voice? How do you recognize your child's voice? Your friend's voice? You've heard it so many times. Their voice hadn't changed. Your ability to recognize it has. They may have called your name in the beginning, but it was unrecognizable that they were doing it. There was no sense of identity and form formation and relationship. But because they've done it so well... They can call you different stuff and you still respond and know who it is. Good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> it's no longer just Jim, it's honey. 
All kinds of things. You recognize a voice. Well, how do you recognize God's voice? By reading your Bible every day. That's what he sounds like. You get in this Bible and read every day, you can understand how he speaks. So that even, even in the midst of the cacophony of sounds that is this version of our reality in which we live, where there are voices from your employer, voices from your spouse, voices from your friends, voices from your own head, voices from the enemy, you can pick out the sound of Almighty God when everybody else is screaming at you. Just like a mama, oh, listen, we had a bunch of babies. And we'd put them as best we could in, in children's church, and most of the time they didn't like it. And, we, we, you know, there'd be 50, 60 kids in there. And I'd be out in the lobby, and all of a sudden, somebody would blurt out in the, in the nursery. And Cynthia would go running. And I said, this, how you know? Where you? That's, that's Grant. There were 50 babies screaming. 50! Oh, I can pick out my baby. Why? Because every day, every night, her ear was attentive to his cry. She heard him. You want to hear the voice of God? Get in this Bible and listen to what he's got to say every day. Because that's what he sounds like. They would learn what it meant to hear the voice of God how to do it, how to respond. And when they heard his summons, they said, I'm there. I'm there. Please, I beg you, don't hesitate. Don't put them on hold. Don't say, wait a minute, Lord, you know, I'm, I, I, I really want to go. I, re I really want to respond to you, but I've got this plan. And it's, 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 I, once I get the corner office on the 11th floor, the corner of 15th and K, I'm going to be okay. Then once I have the, that platform, I'll really be able to help you. So I'll respond when I get there. Don't put God on hold. Don't do it. Come now. Because there's some preparation that needs to be done in your life that you are delaying that is going to help and get you to the place where you are unconsciously incompetent, unconsciously competent. And if you continue to delay, it's going to take you longer to get to where you need to be. And then he, he made companions. He, he called them to be with him. So he called them to himself. They came, and he says, and he called them to be with him. Now, I love being with Jesus. I really do. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what benefit there really is for, for, for him when I'm with him. I mean, it's not like I'm great company. I have a hard time wrapping my, my mind around what obedience looks like when my flesh wants to do the opposite. And, and I don't say all the time what he wants me to say, and I don't do all that he wants me to do. And I'm delayed even in my obedience sometimes, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, why in the world do you what, what? Why me? Why would you choose me? And you want me not just to do something for you. You want me to be with you. I'm not the greatest company. But he, he hangs in there with me. He's amazing. He's so patient, and he's so kind, and he's so loving, and he's so gentle. When he could blast me about everything I do wrong all the time and be rightly upset and bring his wrath into my life in such a way that I could not endure, and he would be right to do so. He is so merciful and so kind. 
So I love being with him because nobody treats me like he does. Nobody. Nobody. But it's not just enough for me to be with him. I mean, I get up usually before the sun and I talk to him. And I pray a lot. Pray for you. Pray for my family. Pray for my community. I talk to him both in English and in tongues. Because I don't have enough good English to pray for you effectively. I don't know how to talk to God on your behalf well enough to where it's all going to make perfect sense. I don't. I'm not not that kind of wordsmith. My my vocabulary is not not large enough. I need more words to, to properly communicate how I want him to care for you. And so I have to use tongues. That gift of sound of the Bible that you think is the weirdest one of all. That thing where people talk in language I don't get. And they say they don't get them either. So why are they talking in them? What does that mean? What is that? That's just weird. Every time it happens, I want to leave. It's just creepy. Ooh, creepy. Well, it's not so creepy when you think about how God made humans. First of all, he made us to communicate. Secondly, he created us with the ability to understand things and to communicate things to people that people understand. But he also made us with the ability to, to, to speak things that are unintelligible and do it in such a way that everybody understands what we mean even though there is no translation. So if I were to say something rather funny, which some of you laughed at, a statement I made earlier, generally speaking, you would not respond with a humorous statement made from me by saying, that was funny. <laughs> like there. You laughed. Now, can anybody give me the translation of... <laughs> oh, we know the meaning. We have the interpretation. The Bible says when there's a tongue, there ought to be an interpretation. So we have the interpretation. The interpretation is, you believe that was humorous. But what's the translation? How do you translate? <laughs> Yet it is something coming from your mouth that, that is communicating something. And all of us understand what we mean but it's unintelligible. And why do we laugh? Because the English language is insufficient to communicate that which we feel on the inside. And so saying, that was funny, just doesn't cut it. So we say things that we don't even, there's no translation for, but we communicate in an unintelligible language, something that everybody can interpret as meaning, that was so funny, I have no words for it. And when I come to God, there are things that I need to say on your behalf I don't have English for. Burdens my soul. And it's so deep in the spirit that the only way I can communicate it well is if I pray in tongues. Bypassing all grammar, all the vocabulary needed to articulate well, and letting my spirit communicate to God that which is in your best interest. That's just one of the reasons why tongues is important. There are many others. But I use that on your behalf. I spend time with my God regularly. And by the way, tongues is not just a gift that he gives to special people. It's a gift that can be pursued by anybody. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, pursue earnestly spiritual gifts. And so you can pursue it and God will give you the ability because you, I mean, you got to see in English. (laughs) What makes you so confident? First of all, English is a flawed language. All languages are flawed. That's why we come up with new words all the time to try to, try to help us understand what's happening now. 
And you're flawed in, in using English. So that's like weakness squared. And somehow you think you can communicate with a perfect God with an imperfect language and an imperfect user of that language. And you're going to say the perfect prayer? Come on now. So God said all languages are like that and all people are like that. I'm going to give them a language where they don't have to use all the grammar to communicate to me in a perfect way that allows them to say things they never could with their mind. <laughs> it's amazing. But it's not just enough that I sit down and talk to God personally. Hmm. He says this, even though your vertical relationship is important, the context of this passage was he called them to be with him. There is a vainness that we all need to embrace. I need you in order to be with Christ the right way. I can go ahead and relate to him however I, I need to vertically. But he never called me to live in a silo. He called me to be in connection with other people. And he called these disciples to be together with him, not just to be with him by themselves. And you talk about the collection of humanity he put together. Oh, my goodness. So you got four guys that like one another sort. I mean, at least they're business partners. You got Peter and Andrew who were brothers and James and John who were brothers. And they were working in, in the Sea of Galilee fishing partners. And uh, Jesus calls all four of them. So they got something going on. They have a relationship. They've got history together. But that history is, you know, everything is a little strained. In, in Matthew chapter 20 and then Mark chapter 10, when Peter, and, excuse me, Andrew, James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, it's, it's at the point at which Jesus is about to, you know, come to the place where they think he's going to sit on the throne. We want to know if we can sit on your right and left. When you enter into your spot, when you take your, your ascendant moment, we want to be right there with you. I'm going to be chief of staff. And James, as John said, James is going to be secretary of defense. We're going to help you out. Now, if you superimpose Mark 10 over Matthew 20, Matthew 20 says this, that, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came with their mama. Can you imagine the disciples? The rest of them are sitting there saying, first of all, we want those spots. And I thought we had an agreement that none of us were going to try to, and, and you try, and then you bring your mama? <laughs> Dude, what's wrong? You bring your, you know Jesus likes all our mamas. What's, you can't do that. You bring your, you try to leverage your mama's affection. You ain't got man enough to just go on your own. You got to They were hot. So much so that the Bible says they argued with one another about who was to be the greatest. So you had conflict even among friends. But Jesus threw a whole nother thing into the mix. He threw two guys who were on the opposite ends of the sociological spectrum. You had this guy, Matthew, the writer of Matthew. He was a tax collector. His name was Levi. And tax collectors were seen to be the lowest of the low in the sociology of who needed to be respected in all of Israel, the lowest of the low. Why? Because they were considered traitors. They would take taxes from the Jewish people and give them to Rome. Everybody hated them. And on top of that, they would not only take taxes from the Jewish people that were allowed by Rome, but because the, the Jews really couldn't do anything to the, 
to the tax collectors and that they were serving a service to Rome, they would always take a little bit more just for them. As evidenced by a guy named Zacchaeus, as Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem the last time, Zacchaeus was in Jericho. And as Jesus was going through Jericho, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He stood up in a tree, got climbed up a tree in order to see Jesus because he was really short. Jesus looked at him and said, today I'm going to die in your house. To which all of the religious leaders said, are you kidding me? Nobody likes this dude. And in Jericho, that dude has, he has taken all our money. We hate him. Jesus goes into the house. Zacchaeus responds as Jesus walks in. Jesus hadn't even preached a message. He says, I want you to know, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody, I'm going to give them fourfold. It's one of those if. If. if you, it's, it's like when somebody intentionally offends you and say, if I have hurt you. This is what tax collectors did. Everybody hated them. So ha- here Jesus brings intentionally a tax collector on his staff. Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, all of them just look and say, really? We hate this dude. He gouged me just last week. And if that wasn't bad enough, on the other end of the spectrum, he brought in this guy called Simon the Zealot. Now you know what a zealot was. A zealot, is a, I, I said earlier, was, was a fella who would be seen by the Israelite people as a freedom fighter, but as a, as a terrorist to Rome. His, his one and only life miss, mission was to overthrow the Roman Empire and to kick Herod out and to set up a new form of government by force. That was his job. That was his mission in life. He was so committed to it, they defined him as a zealot. Here you have Simon the Zealot, not Simon who would later have his name changed to Peter, but Simon the Zealot, along with Matthew. Simon probably had a contract out on Matthew's life last week. Last week. We're going to get rid of all the tax collectors, bro. If we can get rid of the tax, if we can make them even afraid to take the job, that'll help us. Just knock off one by one. And here Jesus brings them on the staff. Can you imagine the dinners? Simon and, Aunt, and, and Peter sitting across from one another. Yeah, yeah make, make a mistake. Make a mistake. I'm going to take you out, bro. <laughs> and Jesus said, all of y'all are going to have to be together with me. Why? Because Simon, listen. In about three and a half, four years, I'm not going to be here. And um, there are some people in the Roman Empire who aren't going to like you like they didn't like me. And they're going to come after you, and they're going to try to stone you in the Jewish community and crucify you in the Roman community. You're going to have so many enemies, you don't know what to do. And everything that is knee-jerk on the inside of you is going to try to fight back. You're going to want to take up arms and cut off somebody's head. But I'm giving you practice on how to love your enemies. In fact, I'd like you and Matthew to become prayer partners. Simon, I'd rather pray with Judas. (laughs) 
I don't want to pray with that dude. I'd rather pray with Judas. No, no, no. Y'all going to pray every morning together. Come on. Yeah, this is what it means to be with me. It's not just you and me. It's all of y'all with me. And you want to hang right with Christ? Sorry, you got to hang with me. Now, please don't interpret what I just said as, as being that which keeps you here. I'm using me as a metaphor. You got to hang with folk you don't like, folk who are difficult, folk that get on your nerves. Why? Because it's practice. If you do Christianity right, there are a whole lot of people out there that aren't going to like you. What are you going to do when they start to persecute you? This is practice up in here. Love people who are unlovable. We are called to be together with Christ. This is what leadership looks like, y'all. Your leadership skills get honed when you love somebody who doesn't love you. Because you're now taking somebody from one level to another that they didn't even know they needed to ascend. They had no idea they needed to get there. But they now have been led by you and your character of forgiveness. You've extended to them something they didn't even know they needed. And they understand something more about God. Leadership is overcoming your difficulties and your problems and your issues to help somebody else get where they need, it, need to be, even if you don't think they deserve to get there. Leadership is leading the unleadable. It's caring for people that won't care for themselves and sometimes will blame you even when you do right. Jesus was trying to help these people. This is what it means to follow me. And then he said, I'm going to cause you to, 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 to go out from me. So after I'm causing you to be with me, then I'm going to send you out. And the sending out was that they would preach. Well, you need to preach in two different ways. One, they needed to preach this gospel. You need to know what the gospel is. What is it you are telling people that helps them understand where they need to get to from your words? And this is the gospel in a nutshell. That God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Proving that he was the son of God by rising on the third day. And then offering forgiveness and salvation to all who would repent and ask for forgiveness in his name. Simple. That's the gospel. You don't need a whole lot of chapter and verse to know those principles. That's where we are trying to lead Jesus, lead, lead others to Jesus, telling them understand, helping them to understand exactly who Jesus was. And you need to read your Bible every day so you can understand the verses to which you need to take them when you say that. Oh, really? He rose from the dead? Take him to that verse. Oh, what's repentance? Take him to that verse. You need to read your Bible and study. But even if you don't get to the place where you feel like you can communicate well enough to help people understand biblically the roadmap to get right, you have a story. And sometimes your story in the ears of others is even more credible than your understanding of what Bible means. It doesn't mean that it is. It just in their ears it is because it happened to you and they can't deny that. It's no longer a point at which they need to contend saying, well, you think one thing, I think another. Now it's you who have lived it and it's ha have Christ changed you. They can't deny that. Tell your story. And it goes something like this. This is what I was without Jesus. This is what Jesus did for me. And this is how I've changed. Easy, easy. And you ought to get an elevator speech. You ought to make it a 25-second version and then get a three-minute version. 
Be able to share with people because when he calls you to himself, he's not just asking you to stay there permanently. He's trying to send you to do something. That's why you're here, to impact the world, to lead somebody else to the knowledge of the truth. God wants to increase your leadership so that it's just not that innate thing where you have this emotional intelligence, you're able to discern the environment, you can go ahead and make good decisions, you got that thing that can't be taught, all that is good, but it doesn't make for leaders, at least not biblical ones. It makes for people who can sometimes make really good decisions, know what to do in environments. But leading people biblically is being able to understand what they need, how you can carry them from one spot to another. It is shepherding. It is guiding. You know, we grew up, at least I did, I don't know about y'all, but we grew up watching Westerns. How, how, how America or the West was one. And, and our, our, we saw cattle. It was all these cowboys, and all we wanted to be when we were kids were cowboys. And so every Christmas we'd get a, a, a gun belt with a little, little silver revolver that had caps in it. Pow, 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 and a hat. And I, I was dressed up every Christmas. And we get little little cow figurines, and we'd have them just do 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 do, and that's what we did. There there were no video games, no video games. This is how we had fun. But all we did was we we never saw shepherds. That's not how America was formed. It's cattle drives, and sheep are not cattle. You drive cattle, you lead sheep. Sheep are, are not to be herded into a pen. They're to be led into a pen. You treat sheep very differently. But we as Americans weren't brought up on what a shepherd was, but a shepherd happens to be the primary model of leadership in Scripture. What was Abraham? Abraham was pretty much a shepherd. So was Isaac. So was Jacob. What was Moses? Well, he was a leader in Egypt before he had to run for his life. And for the next 40 years, what did God have him doing out in the wilderness? Shepherding sheep. 40 years of learning what it would be like to spend the next 40 caring for people. How did God describe David, who was the best king in all of Israel ever, shepherd of my people? And what did David do before he became king except shepherd sheep? And how did Jesus describe himself? Did he ever say to the, the, the men or his staff, I'm the king of the Jews? Not once. Other people proclaimed him that, but he didn't say it himself. And he acknowledged when they said it that it was true, but he didn't say it himself. He did say, I'm a good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You got to learn how to treat people like sheep. It's much more tender. It's much more kind. It's much more patient. Tolerant. And he says, I want you to learn how to communicate with people in such a way that they are drawn by your voice. Even as I am a shepherd and you follow me, they don't know my voice, but they know yours. Lead them in such a way that they will follow you to me. Sent them out to preach. And then lastly, I said he gave them authority over demons. Now, we like the first two, okay? He called me to be with them. I'm challenged that I have to come with other people when I'm with them. Hey, that's tough, okay, but I can do that. And then he called me to go out and minister. Oh, that's difficult. I have to step outside myself. My comfort zone is really violated, but I can do that. But this devil stuff, oh, Pastor Brett, I don't know. Casting out demons, are you kidding me? I've seen the exorcist. Good things don't happen. <laughs> 
Good things don't happen to good people when they start, they start casting out devils. No, 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 no. Heads start turning around and green stuff co co coming out of people's mouths. Oh, those devils are amazingly, they're, they're strong. They're scary. Listen to me. I, I don't go to horror movies. I just don't. Life's scary enough. I need no extra stimulation. <laughs> I don't go. The process of casting out demons, it's, it doesn't require a PhD. Some education, yeah. I mean, you need to be trained to do everything you need to do spiritually. That's what discipleship and leadership development is. That's why they're important to us. We want people to be trained. And we can train you in how to minister the gospel. We have four times a year where we are equipping people to do that. Pastor Jerry Green leads that. We can help you understand how to get people delivered. Talk to our pastoral staff. We have moments for that too. But it doesn't require a seminary degree, nor do you have to sit on a stage like this. It's just a matter of understanding your authority in Christ. Now, hear me. This moves into the supernatural. This is a supernatural thing. And some people don't believe demons exist. They do. There are some things that have been characterized as demonic, which are not. So you, 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 people that are erratic in their behavior, sometimes it's chemical. Sometimes they need counseling. You just need some good wisdom to don't do that anymore. So I'm all for that. But when it's not either of those, chemical or behavioral, and it's demonic, you can't medicate a devil. And a devil doesn't listen to counsel. So he's got to go. And they still exist. They still exist. So you got to have some authority. It's not an incantation. It's not holding up a silver cross and then some holy water trying to sprinkle the devil out. It's not a technique where you're... It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's not decibel level. It's not, I command you. It's none of that. It's not dramatism. It's none of that. It's just authority. If somebody is squatting on a piece of property that's not there, they're living in that thing. But it's somebody else's. Police comes up with an order from the judge saying, sir, you got to move. I got to evict you. I'm sorry, this ain't your property. You got to go. The police officer doesn't have to scream and holler. He just gives them the notice that came from the judge. Why? Because he's been authorized to do so. And that person has to go. All it is is knowing who has authorized you to do so. That's why it says he didn't teach him to cast out devils. He gave them the authority to cast out devils. Now there's some teaching that needs to be done. Acts 19, you had a couple of fellas in there, sons of Sceva, that tried to do it like Paul did it, and they thought it was just a magic potion or an incantation or, 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 or words said in a certain way. And if they did that, open says me, whoo, it happens. No. And so they saw Paul do it, and they said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, they were talking to a friend of theirs that had some problems demonically, they said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. And the demon looked at him. That's not a good thing when the demon looks at you. Not a good thing. And he started talking back. 
He said, Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. What's your name again? And beat those seven boys within a half inch of their life. They ran out without a stitch on. So there are ways to do this. There's, there's an understanding of how you... But it all comes from authority. It's not Brett. Jesus just said, you got to go. Sorry, you can't stay. Bye. In his name, leave. You can say it like that. And the enemy has to go. Now, why did he give them authority over demons? Because it happens to be one of the greatest manifestations of the authority of the kingdom coming. When you can actually deal with the root problem in somebody's life, demonic infestation, rather than cutting off branches regularly, helping them behavioral, behaviorally manage things or seeing them healed physically, when there's a problem down on the inside is deeper, you want to deal with the problem and then all the other stuff just falls away. He said, and when you kick the devil out, I come in. And now I have acquired territory that was taken from me previously. And the kingdom has advanced. That's why he said, I give you the authority here because everything else flows out of that kind of authority. When you pray for somebody to be healed, same authority. When you pray for blind eyes to be opened, same authority. But when you cast out the devil, you've got it at the root and everything else falls. We live in a supernatural religion, y'all. It's not just because we learned a different way to think. Jesus actually lives on the inside of you. He took up residence in your soul. How strange is that? We understand it to be true theologically, and we embrace it wholeheartedly. But if you just think about it for a minute, I just said somebody lives on the inside of you. Why in the world do you want to stop there when that is so supernatural? And then make everything so rational. There is nothing rational about what I just said. It is transformative. It is not just reformative. It changed you from the inside to such a degree that you don't any longer live. And the life you now live, which you live, live by the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The Bible actually says that Christ is in you, who is the hope of glory. All of that is supernatural. You've been raised from the dead. That's supernatural. Why do you want to stop there? Everything else should flow with respect to the authority you have because he left you here to advance his kingdom through your leadership. Take it. Listen to his call. Come to him. Let him train you how to speak and receive the authority to advance his cause in the earth. Can you say amen? amen? Father in heaven, I'm asking for your blessing upon these people. Pour out on them your goodness and grace so that we all can be better tomorrow than we are today.